In Genesis chapter 50, this morning we will be considering uh, verses 15 to 21. So, Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, please give it your full attention. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin. For they did wrong, or they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept. When they spoke to him, then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Saints, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our ears this morning. Our gracious God and Father, we come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you, by your Spirit, would lead us and guide us, that you would help us to receive your word with humility and joy. Help us, Lord, to be reproved and corrected this morning by your word and your spirit. God, I decrease so that you may increase, become less so that you can become more. Be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please, saints, be seated this morning. Again, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, I do welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we uh, come to the second to the last sermon in the book of Genesis. Uh, Before I begin, I would like to briefly praise God for Pastor Isaiah, uh, who has allowed me to rest over the past month as my wife and I have been uh, getting uh, very little sleep, uh, more so my wife than I, uh, but uh, Pastor Isaiah has been very faithful in taking over the main preaching responsibilities for the past month, and Pastor Isaiah will be off until March taking care of his family, so I pray that you do not um, grow sick and tired of my voice, uh, but you'll be hearing it quite a bit until uh, Pastor Isaiah returns in the month of March. Uh, may the Lord bless him and his family, his new little one, Malachi, uh, and give them much-needed rest now. Uh, dear congregation, the last time that we considered the book of Genesis, which was over a month ago, we examined the, the death and the grand funeral service of Israel. Israel, if you remember, was celebrated as though he was one of the kings of Egypt. <clears throat> 
His body was taken out of Egypt and buried in the promised land of Canaan. Uh, You will remember that we discussed this moment as being a, a type of dress rehearsal for the exodus that would come some 400 years later. The sons of Jacob, or Israel if you like, they return to Egypt now. And as they promised to return, they are now coming to grips with the passing of their father, the, the patriarch of their family. The dust from their journey from Egypt to the promised land, and now back again, was now beginning to, to settle. But there still remained a, a type of foggy haze over their family. The death of a family member is one of the hardest things that any of us will have to face in our lives. Indeed, there are a few things which send a shock wave throughout a family unit, quite to the degree that the loss of a loved one does. Especially when that individual, the the one who has passed, as in the case of Jacob, is the head of the family or has been a a leader in the family for a significant amount of years. And when that most precious and important individual is removed, a number of things begin to happen. Not least of all, family relationships are revealed for what they truly are. Uh, Crisis does not so much create conflicts, as much as it reveals the conflicts that have always been there, only suppressed. The death of a loved one will indicate very quickly what people think and what people believe about a number of different subjects. It's often not until after the funeral service that conflicts seem to rise to the surface. In my experience with the... uh, Amounts of deaths that I've experienced in my lives, I've often seen family members band together for the sake of a funeral. But after the final grain of dirt is thrown upon the deceased loved one's coffin, the true sentiments, those sentiments that have been suppressed, begin to be unveiled. Repressed grievances are released Old wounds are opened. Poisons that have not been completely extracted begin to take over the whole of the person. And as believers, men and women of the book, the Bible, we must realize that God is not pleased with half-hearted resolutions. God is not pleased when there is unresolved conflict or unrepented sin. Do not be surprised then when these matters rear their ugly heads when there is unresolved conflict and unrepentant sin. Many family members will fear what will become of their family members when they're gone. Many leaders of their families, matriarchs and patriarchs, have anxiety over the strength of their family bonds when they are no longer the glue that holds them together. They fear that the the family will fall apart when they've gone. 
the family may tear each other apart when they're gone. This is especially true when there has been deep sin against one another in the family circle. Now, we must see these moments of conflict as gospel opportunities, as God works to move people toward a greater love and a greater unity. And these instances, they will be used by God the Holy Spirit as a tool to further sanctify us and to further make us holy. God be gracious to us, especially when we are in families with many unbelievers and we are called to be ones who are to live to a higher standard. Now, this does not mean that every issue, every clash will be wholly resolved. It takes two to make reconciliation. But as long as each person is willing to uh, do their utmost to profit from and to use those tensions as gospel opportunities, then what a blessing in disguise they can turn out to be. Conflict is not easy. But if we can enter those uh, tense situations with the desire for love and unity and for God to be glorified, these tense things can turn out to be blessings in disguise. And we must always ask ourselves this, by what standard do I live? By whose law do I abide by? The law of God? On my own law, doing what is right in my own eyes. As believers, God has set a course for us to follow when dealing with unrepentant sin and unresolved issues. And of course, you know the path that I speak of. It is the holy, infallible, and errant word of God. That is the path that God has called for his people. And dear ones, the word of God anticipates these concerns and questions and faithfully describes them and their solution in his word. This is what I think we're seeing here in the final verses of the last chapter of the book of Genesis. Here the Lord gives us a glimpse into family conflict. And imagine the family through which the skull-crushing seed of the woman emerges and shows us a solution and the purpose for the conflict. Jacob's body has been buried, but the promises of God have not been buried. They remain and they endure. And now then, with God's help, we shall consider just two points this morning concerning true reconciliation. True reconciliation. Number one, confession and mercy. Confession and mercy. This is verses 15 through 17. The funeral of Israel has passed, and now the sons of Israel must settle into life without their father. And now old tensions and old injustices rise to the surface yet again. Even after all the redeeming grace of God shown towards them, they have been preserved from famine, these men. They've lived in the best of the land of Egypt, these men. They and their families have been provided for for 17 years. They have remained provided for. And yet, 
there remained an unshakable guilt and an unshakable fear. Now, what was their fear? What fear did the sons of Israel have? What was their great concern? Well, verse 15 tells us uh, they are concerned that now, now that their father has passed, now Joseph will get his revenge. The great fear and concern of the sons of Israel was revenge, uh, the big payback. Brothers and sisters, why were they anticipating fear or revenge? Why were they in fear anticipating revenge? It was because they were keenly aware of their guilt. When you are guilty, when you have sinned greatly, you are waiting for justice and punishment to come knocking at your door at any moment. Those who have lived lives, former lives, wherein they were involved in criminal activity, they can't hear the siren of the police officers without thinking they're out to come and get them. And now here are the sons of Israel. Hearing the sound of an alarm, if you will. Now that their father is dead, they believe now justice will finally come. Uh, we must understand that, that in that culture, revenge after death, the death of a parent was very common. Read through First uh, and Second Samuel and read through the first beginning chapters of First Kings. In fact, history is full of examples of revenge, especially by those in authority like Joseph. Now, they would wipe out all of their enemies all the way down to their cattle because of someone who has wronged them in the past. You remember in Genesis chapter 27, Esau, what was his resolution after his father Isaac would, would pass? Or after his father, uh, yeah, Isaac would pass. His resolution was, after father dies, then I will kill Jacob. Well, Jacob has passed away. And now the fear and the anxiety of the brothers begins to grow. And they possibly begin to speak to one another. The Bible says they did. And they began to stir one another up, not to love and good deeds, but to guilt and to fear. Our brother will surely now kill us now that dad has passed. Now, there is no longer any restraint. Surely now he will repay us for the evil that we committed against us. He's been waiting all of these years just to get us back. Most people would jump, would jump at the opportunity to gain revenge, wouldn't they? Don't you often get revenge? What about when the coworker treats you unfairly? Aren't you waiting for your moment? No, what about when someone cuts you off in the road? Aren't you waiting to at least catch up to them, to give them a piece of your mind and maybe fingers? When our spouses deal unfairly with us, don't we wait for the moment that we can repay them? You gave me the silent treatment. Wait till it's your turn. I will. Oh, you don't like not being spoken to, do you? Revenge is the product of corruption. Revenge is the evidence of our fallenness. But didn't Joseph have every right to get revenge? 
They had truly sinned against him in the most despicable of ways. Think about this. They put the man in a pit. They sold him into slavery. They covered their sin with a story that he had been ravaged by wild animals. And they kept up their lie for 17 years. Didn't he have the right to take revenge upon them? He could have even cloaked his revenge in legal terms. I mean, he was prime minister of Egypt. No one would have blinked an eye if he had killed his brothers. He had the authority to do so. And given how much the Egyptians appreciated Joseph for the ways in which he saved all of their lives, especially if they found out the whole story, being sold into slavery, they would have been outraged and and appalled at the brothers of Joseph. They would have applauded his revenge. Was Joseph plotting his revenge? Go to Genesis chapter 45. How did Joseph first respond to his brothers when he first revealed himself to them? Uh, Genesis chapter 45 and verse 4 through 15. We see that Joseph was gracious toward them. He told them that their evil deed was permitted, providentially permitted by God for a greater purpose, for the saving of many. That they should not fear. And he, and he drew them near. Come near to me. He, he hugged them. He kissed them. He promised to provide for them. And, and even more than that, forgive them. Joseph had the opportunities to get revenge. But Joseph did not see revenge as the path of God. It is not the way of God for the man of God, brothers and sisters. For the man of God. Revenge does not exist as a pathway for them. For the man of God, revenge is not his right. For the man of God, we understood that evil is done against us. But that we ourselves have committed evil. We understand that there are many who have committed sins and crimes against us. But we have committed the greatest sin and the greatest crime against God. Our sin and our crime against God is greater than any evil ever done to us. So therefore, how could we ever feel that we have the right to get revenge on anyone who is equally as guilty of sin as we are? We don't have the right, dear ones, to get revenge. It may satisfy us for the moment. It may, for the moment, give us a a sense of pleasure. But it will never cure the sin that has been done against us. Think about it. Think of the worst thing that has ever been done against you. Are you thinking about it? Would it satisfy you if you were to do the same back to the person who did it to you? Would you feel better then? What's the old saying? Two wrongs don't make a right. And for the believer... For the man or woman of God. There is no option to go the path of wrong. The road doesn't exist for you. It doesn't exist for you any longer. Well then, if I can't get revenge to to cure this, this hurt and this pain that I feel. What's the cure for the wrong that's been done against me? 
Well, the brothers of Joseph were anticipating revenge for 17 years. We'll get back to that answer right now. Wondering, when Joseph first revealed himself to us, was he sincere? Did he really mean, I forgive you? Did he really mean, I'll provide for you? Uh, Did he really mean that this was all for good? Didn't he mean that we're doomed? Didn't he mean, you wait till dad goes and then I'm going to get you? Some of you older brothers and sisters know what that's like. Wait until mom leaves. My dad used to tell me that story all the time about him and his brothers. That when mom would leave, he would give them the business. They stirred each other up. They assumed the worst. They suspect and they accuse. Dear ones, let me just say to you, that's a recipe for disaster. Being stirred up. He's going to get us. Assuming the worst. It's coming at any moment. Suspecting ill will and then accusing. That's a recipe for disaster in any relationship. Instead of coming to their brother Joseph, being honest with them, here's something that we're concerned about. Having a a sincere conversation, they choose to send a messenger to test his mood. Let's see how he's, let's see if he's really angry. We'll send a messenger. We won't go ourselves. And they come with a carefully crafted Claim, and with an overdue apology, sent by the hand of a messenger. And as you hear their words, you see Joseph's reaction. Uh, We see the old pains and hurts, half-digested, boiling over once again. They say in verse 16, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you. The transgression of your brothers and their sin. For they did you wrong. And now please forgive their transgression. The transgression of the servants of the God of your father. The brothers of Joseph used their father as their mediator. Jacob is their go-between. He is the one that they are seeking will be able to create peace between them. And their brother Joseph. They used their father. And Joseph. Is amazed at what they have said. They were asking Joseph to not give them. What they deserved. What do they deserve? Punishment. What do we all deserve? Punishment. They're asking for mercy. And they are using their father as the mediator for peace. It is at this moment that many commentators and even many ministers, as I've listened to over the past few weeks, accuse the brothers of being dishonest. What do you think? We've known these brothers for quite a while. Were they lying? Did they make up a story that... Their father had said something that he, in fact, did not actually say. Well, we might say, well, we don't have record of Jacob saying any such things. The brothers are simply trying to uh, escape punishment. They are, in fact, the the sons of uh, Jacob, the supplanter, aren't they? Well, let's do a little hermeneutics now. 
Hermeneutics is the, the science of interpretation, if you will, in a short uh, definition. Just because this statement by Jacob was not recorded by Jacob initially does not mean that Jacob never said it. There are plenty of things that we have said in the scriptures that we don't have recorded that were actually stated later as being something that was actually said. There was nowhere in the text that these men, that says that these men were lying. The scriptures are pretty faithful. When someone is lying, the scriptures will tell you they were lying. It could have been that the brothers actually came to their father to beg for help and to gain pardon. And that he allowed them to use his name when the time came. Was there lying? Were they lying or was this request true? We don't need to make a choice. Why? It is because when the Holy Spirit does not evaluate someone's words or actions, then we too must be careful, careful not to jump to conclusions and fill in what we think are missing pieces. There are no missing pieces in the scriptures. It is therefore better for us to not focus on questions we want answered, but focus on what God does say about his own grace and his own work. God has not qualified me, nor you, or authorized me, nor you, to fill in the blanks. He has not appointed us to make sweeping statements about his word, or even dogmatic assumptions about his word. We must be careful when we come to God's word to not fill in blanks where there are none. These brothers still have the wrong idea about Joseph. That, in fact, is true. Years ago, they sold him as a slave out of envy and spite. And now they suspect his hate and they assume his revenge. Even after in chapter 45, he said to them, fear not. God sent me to save your life. Even after Joseph hugged him and embraced him. Even after Joseph said, don't be afraid, come near. Even after Joseph has provided for them and made sure that they were not in want of anything, they are still uncertain. Maybe he's still going to, maybe he is still going to enact revenge. One theologian has said, uh, conscience makes cowards of us all. It is unresolved guilt that they bear in their minds and in their consciences against Joseph that they have never properly confessed. Because they've never confessed it. There's still a, 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 a large degree of guilt and shame and fear. Guilty consciences are so disturbed by blind unreasonable fears that they will cause you to to stumble in broad daylight. Christ said in Matthew 7, when you have the log of unresolved or unconfessed sins of your own in your own eye, you will not see clearly what is or isn't in someone else's. The log in your eye, you trip over things that you would never trip over if you were able to see clearly. 
Calvin said, And they, the brothers, have undoubtedly begun to repent of their wickedness. But because not yet sufficiently purified, the Lord allows them to be tortured with anxiety and troubles, first to make them an illustration to us that an evil conscience is its own torment, and to them to humble and them to humble them under the reward, a renewed sense of their own guilt, that is, the due reward of their own neglect. It is possible that they suspect that Joseph was planning revenge because that's exactly what they would do if the roles were reversed. Their hearts, uh, the hearts of the guilty, treacherously suspect that others are just like them. And they make assumptions that others have the same sinful hearts as they do. In doing so, the brothers of Joseph are being chased by the ghost of their own sins. As they stammer and break Joseph's heart, they are accusing Joseph in the most painful of ways. That nothing has changed, Joseph. You still are going to try to enact revenge on us. and It's making cowards of them. It's making them blind. Unless guilt is dealt with honestly and humbly, it can make sneaky, dishonored, dishonest cowards or simply sad, misinformed cowards of us all. If we would humbly learn to be honest and thoroughly confess our sins early and often, how much pain and fear would we be preserved from? How many hurtful accusations against others would God save us from if we would be humble and confess our sins without wasting time? 17 years to confess sin. 17 years of finally saying, we did you wrong. And this Reminds of us, reminds us of our Christ, doesn't it? Christ was betrayed. Christ called us to come near to Him. Christ was given over to punishment that we deserved. And yet He calls the guilty, us, to have no fear. Christ has saved us from justice, the justice of God. And we are still uncertain with whether or not we will join Him in paradise. Christ has met our every need and yet we still wrestle with anxieties and fears over whether or not he will still provide. After all of his goodness, after all of his kindness, we still doubt him in fear. We still question God with what ifs. What if my faith and repentance is not real? What if I'm not really forgiven? What if God is just waiting to get me? And so then we interpret every negative event in our lives as evidence that God is out to destroy us. Whether it be the death of a loved one, the loss of a precious relationship, not getting your promotion that you thought you deserved, or your car not starting. It all becomes evidence that God is against me. Because we know that we deserve punishment and so then we assume that god would treat us the way he would treat someone who doesn't belong to him 
We then are chased by the ghost of our own sins. And we misunderstand the grace and the mercy of God. And in doing so, we accuse God in the same way that the brothers accused Joseph. Aren't you, aren't you offended? Uh, wasn't Joseph, I'm sure, offended by the ways his brothers still did not believe that he had forgiven them? Brothers, I forgive you. Why are you still holding this fear and this worry and this doubt when I have said to you, I forgive you. I have shown you nothing but love. My words, if they are not evidence, at least allow my actions to be evidence. In what ways have I wronged you? And yet they are still waiting for the hammer to come down upon their heads. Luther said, for feelings come and feelings go. Now feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God. Not else. Nothing else is worth believing. Though my heart should feel condemned for want of some sweet token. There was one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. Dear ones, is there condemnation? Yes, that's why I feel the way that I feel. And if there was no condemnation, then why do I feel this way? It's because you know your guilt. You know your sin. We know it. But praise be to God in 1 John. John says, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Whenever our hearts condemn us and say, you are not worthy. You go to God's word and God's word says, I have made you worthy in my son. Don't trust your heart. Trust my word. The antidote to your condemnation is a firm grasp on the word of God. What are the promises of God worth to you, dear saints? What are they worth? I ask you, what if God never made one promise to you in your life? What would your life be today? What if there was not a promise of forgiveness? What if there was no promise of grace? No promise of His Spirit, of peace, of growth, provision, heaven, glory, or reigning with Christ? What would your life be like? You would be living in fear. You would be living in anxiety and doubt and dread. You would dread the final day. When you sing it as well with my soul. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. May I ask you, is it well? Is it well? Are the promises of God your consolation? Are they your anchor of hope? Are they what causes you to sing with sincerity, it is well with my soul? 
For the promise of God, promises of God are yes and amen. I fear not because of his word. There is no more anxiety because of his word. I will not doubt him no longer because of his word. Is that where you stand? Are you in the place of the brothers of Joseph? Do you fear the what ifs? Is there yet doubt? Is there yet everything is against me? These men through confession by the work of the spirit are working toward being able to say it as well with our soul. The message goes to Joseph. Joseph receives it. How does he receive it with weeping? Oh, and when he receives it with the type, the type of tender mercy and care that he receives it with, they feel comfortable to do what? To come to him and to throw themselves at his feet. Do you see that in the scriptures? They send a messenger. When they see that his response is mercy and tenderness and loving care toward them, then they come. And when they come, they throw themselves at his feet once again, fulfilling the, the dreams that he had as a child. Here they are, groveling at his feet, begging for mercy. It's mercy. I know that you did evil, that you, we all deserve punishment, but I will not give you what you deserve. Why? Because I too deserve punishment. I too deserve the worst. I have been given mercy, so who am I to withhold mercy from you? You remember the parable of the unforgiving servant, don't you? Forgiven by a king of all of his great debt. Then runs out into the street and finds a man who owes him but a few dollars and is merciless toward the man. The king discovers this man's wicked act, calls him in, you wicked servant. I forgave you of all of this debt and you would not forgive this man. He is thrown out into utter darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, if we would only confess. And when we hear a confession, be merciful toward the confessor. Why? Because God has been merciful to you and to me. Especially if you call yourself a man or a woman of God, you are doubly responsible to give mercy. Especially if you call upon the name of Christ, you are doubly responsible to forgive, to not harbor any kind of bitterness in your heart towards your brother. I say that with a pointing finger, with an angry face, but my God, receive it with mercy and love and with care. That we would not see division among the people of God. Listen, because all because of an unwillingness to forgive. And some people seeing division because of an unwillingness to forgive as a trivial matter. I left the church. I just couldn't forgive the brothers. Deacon Ray, could you please turn the air on, brother? I'm all of a sudden burning up. Is that okay with everyone? It seems quite warm in here. Uh, their view on the Sabbath... That's why I, I left the church. That sounds reasonable. 
Uh, their view on Christ and the atonement, that's why I left the church. Uh, that seems reasonable. Uh, their view on uh, evangelism, whatever. But I left the church because I was unwilling to resolve issues. No. The person who claims the name of Christ must show mercy, must walk the path of righteousness, and the path of righteousness is mercy and grace, understanding and forgiveness. Dear saints, what path do you walk? What path do you take? I pray it is the one of righteousness. Secondly, and finally, forgiveness and grace. This is verses 19 to 21. Again, when Joseph receives the message from his brothers, he weeps. And why does he weep? Well, there, there are a number of possible reasons why he weeps. He is, he's the weeping prophet before Jeremiah. He may have wept at the hearing of the request by his beloved brothers and his beloved father. Some of us can't have conversations without our beloved loved ones that have passed without shedding tears. He may have wept because he revisited the pain and betrayal of his brothers. He may have wept because for 17 years he has been nothing but gracious to his brothers in spite of their sin against him. It's almost something that makes you say, I'm done with you guys. <laughs> I've been nothing but kind to you. I've done nothing but show mercy to you. You want the hammer, I feel like I will just give it to you then. It could have been all of the reasons above that he's crying. But dear ones, notice the response of Joseph to his brothers. It's first tears. And then it's secondly, again, do not be afraid. He must have said, said he must have said this phrase to them, do not be afraid, at least five times in all of their interactions. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He calms their fears. Don't be afraid. He does not speak harshly to them, but graciously to them. Uh, may I say to you in conflict, speaking graciously is one of the foremost ways of, of at least getting off to the right foot in conflict. Even after their assumption, their false assumption that he was a harsh man, that he had ill intent for them. He speaks gently to them. Don't be afraid. He shows them that he's actually the opposite of what they think. I've forgiven you. Uh, Joseph was not working on forgiveness. You know how we do that. I'm working on it. I forgive you, but I'm working on it. I say forgiveness with my words, but I'm working on it in action. He wasn't working on trying to forgive them. All was forgiven. All was forgiven. He was not harboring bitterness toward them. Uh, he was not waiting for an opportune moment to get revenge. Everything was forgiven. This is the danger. One of the dangers, at least, of false assumptions. They cause fears. They cause anxieties. They cause divisions. Uh, we think that this relationship uh, to one another... 
must first apply uh, to us, but it doesn't. It, it applies first to Christ, meaning this. We must be careful not to doubt the forgiveness that we have in Christ. We must not for, uh, doubt that all of our sins have been washed away and cast into the sea of forgetfulness by Christ. Did Christ not say to the woman caught in adultery when asked, where are your accusers? There are none, sir. Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Uh, did not Christ say to the paralytic, firstly, not that you are healed, but that your sins are forgiven. Rise, take up your mat and walk. The promise of the new covenant is this, that God will forgive our sins, that he will put our law in his, in his law in our hearts. And cause us to walk in all of his ways. To all who come to Christ. By faith. Be encouraged. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. John 3.17. But so that the world through him might be saved. And this is why Joseph says thirdly. First he cries. Secondly, fear not. Thirdly, am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Joseph understood his place. He understood that he did not sit on the seat of God's judgment. Only God sits there. But let us be very clear. Joseph did not say we have no right to judge anyone of any sin. Very important. We all do it. If someone offends you or sins against you, you judge that by calling them on their sin or offense against you. If you, we do not believe we're not allowed to judge, only God can judge, we're not being honest. There are people who do things against you in your job, in your home, in your school, out in the marketplace that you judge as being wrong. You are judging individuals. Be consistent. When we say we're not, we are not to judge, we don't mean in the way that we typically understand judgment. Joseph is speaking about a once and for all deserving of punishment kind of judgment. Meaning this, you will be punished not by me, but by God. What are they afraid of? Punishment. Joseph says, it won't come from my hand. God will do it. He understands his final place. God is sitting on the seat of judgment and I dare not take one step toward that throne. God will enact revenge. The message of the gospel isn't, is full of law, isn't it? When we go and share the gospel, don't we tell people, brother Deacon Ray and brother Dustin did it yesterday. You have sinned. You're making a judgment according to God's word. And someone recognizing that they are being judged for their sin and that it is a righteous judgment is the first step towards repentance and faith in Christ alone. But the final seat belongs to God. They would ultimately one day stand before God for their sin. Not Joseph. And Joseph understood his place. But he does not dismiss their actions, does he? His judgment of their actions is even a judgment. He says to them, your deeds were evil. That's a judgment. You did evil against me. And he says in one of the most familiar verses in all of the scriptures, shall we read it together? Verse 20. 
As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. As Joseph hears their words, he doesn't say to them, hey guys, we were young. You didn't mean it. Forget about it. No. He doesn't say that at all. He was honest about their sin. You intended evil against me. That's very difficult to say to someone. Imagine that. We, we, don't we usually excuse, it's, it, it's okay. It's not that bad. Tell someone who has done wrong against you, and they know that they've done wrong against you, you, you tried to hurt me. And let them bear the weight of that reality. You tried to hurt me. Grace does not mean that you pretend. But that you lovingly are honest. Grace doesn't mean that you pretend. It means that you are lovingly honest. And for the one who is being, who is receiving honesty, you then need to receive it humbly. We like honesty. We don't like humility. We like to be blunt with people. If people can accept our bluntness. Well, one of the, one of the ways that we can help with our bluntness, being loving toward, uh, as we, as we say whatever we are bluntly going to say. And what is the, what is one of the ways that we can help the conversation go well? Well, if the person who is hearing the bluntness is receiving it with humility and not defensiveness. Well, you, but what about you? Well, that doesn't help, does it? That just furthers the conversation in a more downward spiral. Uh, I promise that I wasn't going to share this. I don't know why it's coming, and, and Lord, help me, but it's, it's not stopping. I, I, some of you uh, have grown up maybe during the 90s, 80s and 90s, and maybe one of your favorite shows was The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Hey, you know that all of a sudden, Aunt Viv dra- dramatically changed. She was no longer the woman that she was after the first two seasons. And it was because there was conflict between Aunt Viv and Will. I am so sorry for using this example, but I hope it's helpful. Well, for many, many years, there's been conflict between this woman, Aunt Viv, and Will Smith. They recently got together for after years and years of not being able to speak to each other, hating each other from a distance. And the woman said to Will, he allowed her to speak. I was amazed by it. He allowed her to speak, and she said, you destroyed my career. The things that you said about me, no one would hire me in Hollywood. Not only... Uh, did you describe me as being angry? That's one thing against me. But describing me now, and she said, and I'm black. And now I'm being described as an angry black woman. No one wants to hire me in Hollywood. You destroyed my career. I went through a divorce. And she's just telling him all of the ways that, she, that he played a part in destroying her career. Guess what he did? He listened to everything that she said. And he said, I am so sorry. And that was it. There was a person who was a uh, psychologist who said to him after the interview, she was laying it on you. 
How did you maintain your cool? He said, because if someone has sinned, if you feel like, he basically said, if you have done someone wrong, you need to own it and embrace it because that's what they, that's what she went through. I wasn't there for it. She went through it and I need to own it and accept responsibility for it. If I would have made my defense, it would have turned ugly. And at the end of it, they were able to hug and have the reunion together. And I was, I was listening to it and thought, this is actually very helpful for conflict. If someone, you, if, some, if someone is bringing to you a sin, embrace it. And that takes a lot of shutting, which means a lot of humility. A lot of humble pills and humble pies, they say, to eat. Well, that's a lot that we can learn from, can't we? We often sometimes trip over apologies and confessions because they're not as pretty and nice as we would like them to be. Okay, what are you sorry for? And what else? Mm -hmm. And then what? And you're still mad. Why? Because they didn't say everything I wanted them to say. Well, we need to be thankful that the grace of God by the Holy Spirit is breaking through at least so that there's some kind of confession Something or nothing. Let's take something as a starting place. We sometimes insist on perfect confessions and we miss the real work of grace that shines out of sinners making confession. Even if that confession is still has some remaining blindnesses and things to work through. Accept it. Embrace it. He could have told them how he was hurt by all their lingering fears. Joseph could have even launched an inquiry over whether or not Jacob said what they said he said. Let's find out if dad really said this. But as you listen to Joseph, he's not even thinking about himself. Not in the least. He pours out what is in his heart toward his brothers, which is only love and forgiveness. What we see is a work of grace in Joseph, but it is a small picture of a greater one in the Lord Jesus Christ. God saves his covenant people. He draws them to himself. And he forgives us. Because he's thinking about us. And preserving that relationship that he has made and created us for. You've heard, again, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to serve many people's lives. And we're reminded of Romans 8.28. God works all things together for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. All that had transpired in Joseph's life now makes sense on the other side of the shore. The entire region has been saved from death. Let me ask you in closing. Was it good for Joseph when he was in the middle of the pit? Go ahead. This is good. Was it good for Joseph when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife as being he's being taken away as he's saying to the soldiers, guys, you don't realize this is actually going to be good. You'll see. When Joseph was placed into the dungeon for another two years, did he say to the uh, cupbearer and the baker, you guys don't even get it. It's all good. Well, from Joseph's perspective, no, it was not all good. 
Not in the least. It was not pleasurable, not enjoyable. But Joseph only had Earth's view. He only had the perspective from here. And from an earthly perspective, everything that was being done to him was evil. It was meant by those who did the evil for evil. And yet, behind the free will and evil workings of the sons of Israel, God was working. The sons of Jacob become tools in the hand of God that God would use to further his promises and his purposes. And we know the verses. Uh, They speak to something concerning a reality that is all throughout the book of Genesis, and it is the providence of God. It is the secret will of God worked out in time and worked out in our daily experiences, be they enjoyable or be they painful. They are the providences of God. And they are, as Paul says in Romans, whether they be painful or enjoyable, all working together for good. And all of this is being is taking place by the hand of God, who is ordering all of these things. Listen to this. Not for your destruction. Not for your destruction. But for your building up. To build you up. All that takes place is meant to conform us to Christ. And every single one of these providences carry with them a weight of eternal glory. But do you know and believe this truth when a loved one dies? All of these are working together for good. After the funeral, when the dust settles, conversations reemerge, unresolved issues arise, when the report from the doctor is dire, when the home with all your prized possessions is robbed, when you are afflicted for your faith. Now, all of these things are working together for good. Do you believe that? Do you believe it then? Do you believe that the difficulties are actually ordained by God, sent by God, and not intended for ill, but for good? You don't need to know the end of the story in order to know that God will work it all together for good. And I think that's often why we wrestle, isn't it? We may very well uh, accept the affliction. Embrace it wholly. Worship God in his providential workings. If we knew what was going on within the secret will of God. If we knew and God could show us, here's the end of the story. Here's why I'm doing all these things. So when it happens, it'll be all right. You know the end. Don't you hate that when you watch certain movies? Certain, uh, they've already told you the end. So when you see someone, they're not going to fall. They're going to get caught. I already saw the end of it. I'm going to be all right. But while they're falling, they're they're falling. And you're saying, they're going to die. But the person who's already seen the movie said, they're going to be all right. You're jumping out of your seat. They're barely hanging and falling asleep because they already know it's going to be okay. 
Joseph was able to have not an understanding of the end of the story, but a faith in God that through, throughout every single one of these providences, God had promised to not let him go. And that's all you need to know. He has promised that he will not let you go. That's all you need to know. Through every single one of the difficulties, hold on to this. He won't let you go. You don't need to know what's going to happen at the end. Just know that he'll be there. That's enough. And let's be careful not to isolate this truth. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good to Joseph alone. Because in spite of the evil that was done to Joseph, the evil was also good for his brothers too. It was meant to bring them to repentance. The guilt of their sin at the very end of the book, at the very end of the book, almost like the thief on the cross at the very end of his life. The Lord brings them collectively on their knees to repent and to ask for reconciliation. They were moved beyond earthly sorrow and brought to to their knees by the sovereign grace of God. Long overdue, yeah. In terms of Joseph's timing. But in terms of God's timing, their repentance was right on time. He would have longed to have it earlier. But God had an appointed time when he would give these men a heart of flesh and take away their stony hearts. That's encouraging for you and for that dark list. We would like it now. But God has an appointed time for every single one of them, if they be his. And in the final verses, I will provide for you and for your family. He draws us. God does, just as Joseph did, by mercy and grace. Come, brothers, I will provide for you. I'll take care of you. What does God say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Joseph says, I will provide for you. What does God say? Come to my throne boldly to receive mercy in time of need. Uh, They come begging uh, on their knees, and so do we when we come to God. And God says to us, I forgive every single one of your sins. I know you're worthy of death. I know your weight of sin is too much for you to bear. That you would even hide your face if possible. Don't they hide their face? They send a messenger hiding their face. And then they show up when they see that that Joseph is merciful. So do we. When we see that God is merciful, that he welcomes sinners, we stop hiding our faces and we come to him on our knees and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does he do? He stands us up. He puts a righteous robe upon us and says, I take your unrighteousness. I take your sin. I've nailed it upon the cross. You are now mine forever. I'm adopting you into my family. I will provide for you. And there is a heaven, a a glory that is laid up for you. Because I will not let you go. He could have sent the sons, go back to Canaan. Go figure it out over there. No, you are staying here 
and I will provide for you. I will not let you go. Joseph is a type of Christ. He gives us a glimpse into the forgiveness, the mercy, and the grace, and the provision that we have in Christ. In conclusion, dear saints, are you vexed with fear? Go to Christ. Are you fearful that your sin is unforgiven? Look to the cross of Christ. Do you believe that you will be punished when life is over? Don't believe your hearts. Believe the word of Christ. I leave you with the words of the Apostle John. First John 2, 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. To God be the glory. Let us pray.